the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 31, March 1968. In our last newsletter, our subject was anarchistic love as a revolutionary concept and an erosive force. To continue our analysis, it must be pointed out next that the total impact and purpose of all such thinking is moral disarmament. Moral disarmament always precedes the economic, political, and military disarmament and dismemberment of a people. Disarmament begins first in the mind and soul of man, and it proceeds then to affect his very activity. The forces of moral disarmament have always been present in history, but in recent years, they have become progressively more vocal. The nature of their attack, if anyone had missed it previously, became obvious in 1928 when Ernest Sutherland Bates published his book, The Friends of Jesus. In many respects, Judas came out as Jesus' best friend. In fact, one could say Judas came out better than Jesus at Bates' hands. But the book attracted only minor notice. Moral disarmament had already reached the point where Bates' book was not startling. Evil was now getting more sympathy than good. A betrayer had become a tragic and noble figure, and treason was thus somehow a higher loyalty. Instead of a clear-cut stand by people for truth and against error, for God against Satan, for right against wrong, and for law against crime, there was now a growing and serious moral confusion. The next decade saw gangsters extensively glorified in motion pictures and the films made money simply because they met a growing popular demand. Sympathy was now with the rebel, the criminal, and the pervert. Captain Bly, who was actually a man of caliber, became a symbol of evil, and the degenerate lot of mutineers in the bounty became popular heroes. Moral disarmament makes us sympathetic with evil in order to make us hostile to good. If we are made to feel for Judas... To that extent, we are separated from Christ. The end result is that we are asked to be friendly with hell itself, to approve of coexistence with everything evil, religious, moral, political, and economic. The next step is to call the good evil. Thus, an Episcopal scholar, Marshall W. Fishwick, in False Revisited, Some Thoughts on Satan, 1963, sends Christian conservatives readily to hell. Thus, Fishwick writes on one man, 
descended from a good family, this public-spirited fellow met a good thing out of cleanliness. He ran for public office on a ticket of clean government, clean elections, and clean towels in City Hall. Campaigning in immaculately white collars, he won easily and self-righteously crowed proudly from the church steeples. He was very busy up until the day he died. There were so many meetings of the Children's Welfare Bureau that he neglected his own children, one of whom ran off with the trombonist and a jazz combo. He was too clean to allow his city to go in debt, so it built no new schools. He also refused to take federal funds to provide free lunches, since he thought that was dirty politics. He erred in the name of high principles. He went to hell. Page 39F. Fishwick also declares, quote, There is something satanic about suburbia. Unquote. Page 80. And he hopes that someone will, quote, burst our ideas of good and evil all to hell, unquote, and free theology, page 128. Notice Fishwick's association of ideas, clean government, clean elections, clean towels, and clean collars are all somehow marks of self-righteousness and evil. They lead to a neglect of one's children. If you do not go into debt, you are against progress. Quote, new schools, unquote, and are a Pharisee. Taking federal funds is good. Refusing them is bad. High principles will send you to hell. After a couple of generations and more of such teaching and preaching, is it any wonder that the people are morally disarmed? In the name of the modernists, quote, Christ, unquote, they are now for evil and against good. In the name of Americanism, they tolerate communist and oppose anti-communist. In the name of morality, they invite perverts into their fellowship and exclude Christians because they refuse to tolerate evil. Pastor Richard Wormbrand has written that many Western Christian church leaders defended their associations with communist leaders, saying, quote, As Christians, we have to be friendly with everybody, you know, even the communists, unquote. Why, then, were they not friendly to those who had suffered? Why did they not ask one word about the priests and pastors who had died in prison or under torture? Or leave a little money for the families that remained? These church leaders were either morally disarmed or were busy disarming the churches morally. Their sympathy is with evil, not good, with Antichrist, not Christ. Of course, these churchmen assure us that their hearts are full of love for everyone and they are burning with a passion to, quote, save, unquote, mankind. A very prominent and able English congregational theologian, John S. Well, in Victor and Victim, 1960, assures us that, quote, the goal of the universe is the end of all estrangement, the fullness of reconciliation in Christ, unquote. And this means, quote, that Satan himself is finally saved, unquote, page 41. Now, if Satan himself is going to be saved and spend eternity with us, why should we, and how can we, be too hostile to him now? If Stalin and Kosijin are going to be our brothers in heaven, can we deny them love and brotherhood now? If coexistence is our destiny in heaven, why not begin practicing it now? Well said, quote, The goal of the universe is the end of all estrangement, unquote. 
This means the end of all discrimination and division. But the biblical doctrine of heaven and hell is a denial of coexistence in time and eternity. It means that the goal of the universe is actually the final estrangement of good and evil of the saints and the sinners. It means that a separation in terms of the righteousness of God in Christ is basic to the historical process. Take away this doctrine and you deny that there is an ultimate distinction between good and evil. Coexistence then becomes a religious and political necessity. Emory Storrs once said, quote, When hell drops out of religion, justice drops out of politics. Unquote. Cited by Harry Bowie, The Doctrine of Eternal Punishment, page 122, Philadelphia, Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company, 1957. The coexistence preachers tells us that hell is a horrible doctrine, but is there any hell to equal the horror of coexistence between God and Satan, good and evil, Christ and Antichrist? Religious and political coexistence has created more misery and horror than we can begin to imagine. Justice and hell bring law, order, and sanity to life. But moral disarmament wants to destroy all the God-given distinctions. Its hope is that problems disappear if we say that they are non-existent. Its moral disarmament is the necessary step for a surrender to evil. Some of the disarmers talk about moral rearmament. But is it moral rearmament to blur the distinctions between religions, to work for the unity of things which are by nature contrary, and to assume that God will ratify man's open contempt for his call to separateness? Any honest survey of the world's scene indicates that we have been morally disarmed. The churches on the whole are in the enemy's camp, actively engaged in moral disarmament. The Bible is neither believed nor taught, and an alien religion is preached from the pulpits. We are also politically disarmed. We treat our enemies as friends and our friends as enemies. We are soft on communism and hard on Christianity, orthodox Christianity. The unpopular man is he who demands a moral stand in any area in religion, politics, economics, education, or anywhere else. Moral disarmament is the prelude to collapse and ruin, to captivity and slavery. The reason we are not already enslaved is simply that our enemy is still weaker than we are, and we still have a saving remnant. To counteract the prevailing moral disarmament, more than pietism is needed. Christian maturity, Christian growth is necessary. Reconstruction requires, first of all, sound doctrine, biblical faith, and second, the development of Christian thinking in every area, in economics, politics, education, science, and all things else. The reign of terror in the French Revolution was directed quite openly against three groups. First, the political counter-revolutionaries were to be liquidated. Second, the economic aspect, all who, quote, hoarded, unquote, food or money to protect themselves, were marked for execution. Third, organized, faithful Christians were marked for beheading on the guillotine also. The last target, Christianity, was the central one, the nerve of hostility to revolution. By November 1793, the Marquis de Sade and other revolutionists were ready to propose a new religion of reason, humanism. The goal was moral disarmament. The purpose was to create a humanistic paradise on earth. 
the result was hell on earth, as a loyal biographer of Sade admits. Reason had been exalted to the status of a god and committees, assemblies, and communes deliberated on concepts of law, order, and justice. But it was Madame Guillotine who ruled, without reason, without justice. She served all men with equal candor as they knelt at her feet and blessed them with the benediction of her weighted blade. Norman Gear, The Divine Demon, A Portrait of the Marquis de Sade, page 131. The goal of the revolution of moral disarmament, then, was liberty, fraternity, and equality. Liberty from God, fraternity and sin, equality of all moral and economic and religious distinctions. But the end was liberty from life, fraternity and death, and equality in hell. This is always the conclusion of moral disarmament. Let us heed St. Paul's words, quote, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Unquote. Ephesians six, ten through 13 Calcedon Report No. 32, April 1968 The economics of the world are out of control. The various civil governments, all socialist in varying degrees, have long experimented with controlled economics, that is, with socialism in its various forms. They have favored a controlled economics over a free economy because it means more power to the state. But now, with the inevitable economic chaos of socialism beginning to appear, both power and economic productivity are going down the drain. The immediate result will be more controls. How can two such assertions be made, quote, out of control, unquote, and, quote, more controls, unquote? Simply this, the reaction to the loss of power and control over the economy is to grab for more power and more control as though this were the answer. The controls put the economy into a disastrous course. More controls will only increase the disaster. But frightened men react dangerously and hysterically. When a man's car begins to go out of control, the reaction is to grab the wheel more tightly, not to act sensibly. I have seen men sliding on an icy road do the very worst possible things, hit the brakes hard and grab the wheel sharply, and only increase the loss of control by their actions. Thus, we shall have controls, but the controls will aggravate the disaster. The controls are already there, all over the world. Some in use, some ready to use. Consider, for example, some of the controls which exist, ready for use in the United States. First, the federal government has the legal right now to enter all safety deposit boxes when it deems that an emergency warrants it. Second, all checks are subject to and routinely processed by microphotographing so that a complete file of every check written is available for federal inspection. Third, all large withdrawals of cash must be recorded for reporting. Fourth, all money sent abroad by check is carefully recorded and so on. The vast data files accumulate to give us a nearly total picture of every man's economic life as possible. 
Banks are key to this information, and through the Federal Reserve System, banking is today virtually socialized. This all sounds frightening, and in one sense it is. But let's examine it from another perspective. The federal government, like all civil governments, virtually is drowning in an ocean of data. The more the data accumulates, the less manageable it becomes, and the less usable it becomes, because there is too much to handle, assimilate, and use. You can find a needle in a pen tray, but not very readily in a haystack. Take, for example, the Internal Revenue Service, one of the most efficient and best-managed branches of the federal government. Criticize Internal Revenue as much as you will on other grounds, but grant this fact. It has to collect and deliver funds to the federal government regularly. It has to produce, in other words, something not required of most federal agencies. It functions successfully because it has a core of able and effective administrators, officers, clerks, and workers. But internal revenue is increasingly plagued with internal problems, lost files, misplaced records of receipts, and so on. Problems connected with missing data. The reason is twofold. Massive volumes of data in the human factor, an example, inefficient help. One man who misplaces data can create months and years of work for efficient men and considerable trouble for the citizens whose files are missing. Increase the number of inefficient workers and the situation is out of hand and an agency breaks down. In some countries, this breakdown is appearing. Luigi Barzini has written, quote, The late Luigi Inaldi, Italy's foremost economist and ex-president of the Republic, calculated that if every tax on the statute books was fully collected, the state would absorb 110% of the national income, unquote. Luigi Porzini, The Italians, page 108. In many countries, there is a growing inability to collect taxes because of the breakdown of a huge bureaucracy which is drowning in its own files and processes. But this is only a small part of the breakdown which controls bring on. The attempt at total control is essentially religious. The state usurps the prerogative of God. It plays at being God and like God. It aims at total knowledge. God, having created and determined all things, knows all things. The aim of the state is total knowledge for total controls. The state cannot possibly attain either, and the result is a collapse. In the Soviet Union, the failure of data came early, and it came thoroughly. The result was a loss of control over the economic facts of the country. Practically, this meant famine in the early 20s, again in the 30s, and a continuing economic and agricultural crisis. The Soviet Union's planning is a radical failure because its knowledge is ignorance and its controls are a joke. It cannot control the economy. Without foreign aid in the form of credit and without imperialism, it could not survive. For knowledge and controls, the Soviet Union substitutes force and brutality. Its data is a mess and its controls a jumble of ineffective contradiction. Its answer to its self-created crisis from the beginning has been to seek control by brutal force. But brutal force is not an instrument so much of control as it is of open warfare. The first and last war of communism is against its own people because they are really out of control. The state's planning cannot move the people, it only cripples them. And the socialist state reacts with savage hatred. It wages war against the people.
How far will we go in a world out of control? A world reverting to jungle warfare in the streets of America, South America, Africa, Asia, Europe, and behind the iron and bamboo curtains. Much of the jungle warfare, if almost all, in the United States is subsidized by a federal government already at war with the people. But a socialist world is an impossibility. It is a consumption economy, not a production economy. Without outside help, it quickly perishes. That death is in the offing, and it will be an ugly, hard death, but die it will. The economic tailspin devaluation followed by devaluation, inflation, and more inflation, all this and more followed by and accompanied by plague and epidemic, will mark the end of an age. The era of the Enlightenment, the age of humanism, will perish. In its place will come a Christian reconstruction, a free economy, and a true law and order. Quote, it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. Unquote. Zechariah 14.7 At the moment when total darkness seems about to overwhelm, the light of God's liberty shall blaze forth afresh. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.